choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 270 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, the news breaks. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. The Apollo 13 spacecraft has had a serious power supply malfunction that could cause the lunar landing mission to be terminated early. At the moment, the astronauts are continuing to try to isolate their trouble. A late report says the spacecraft now is operating on battery power alone. All unnecessary equipment is being turned off. The Apollo 13 spacecraft has lost all electrical power. And astronauts Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert are making their way through the tunnel to the lunar module, using it as a lifeboat so they'll have electrical power for their radios on the command module. Apollo 13 is apparently also losing breathing oxygen, and the astronauts may have to use the LEMS oxygen supply. The emergency has ruled out any chance of a lunar landing and could endanger the lives of the astronauts themselves. If the LEM oxygen supply, plus whatever is left of the command module's oxygen, can't last them until they can get back to Earth. The flight of the Apollo 13 to the moon is in serious jeopardy this morning and is not going to make a moon landing. As the in Houston, Texas, Marilyn Lovell was driving home from the Manned Spacecraft Center after watching Apollo 13's TV broadcast. Tonight, traffic was light and Marilyn knew she'd be home in time to tuck her youngest child, four-year-old Jeffrey, into bed and get Susan and Barbara into the house and off to sleep at a respectable hour. Like most NASA wives, Marilyn had driven this route a thousand or so times before, but this evening she would have preferred not to have made the trip. Things were a lot easier the first three times her husband went into space when NASA manned missions got complete TV coverage. Marilyn couldn't help but feel cheated by how much had changed since then. At least, when Apollo 12 had gone up five months earlier, Jane Conrad had gotten to watch some of Pete's broadcasts between the Earth and the Moon without having to run all the way over to the Space Center to do it. Marilyn pulled the car into the driveway and glanced at her watch. It was still too late to call her fourth child, 15-year-old Jay, at St. John's Military Academy in Wisconsin, to tell him that the broadcast had gone well and that his father looked fine. Jay knew that had anything not gone well, he would be alerted right away, but Marilyn still liked to tell him herself. Now it would have to keep until morning. Marilyn quickly thanked the babysitter and got the kids into the house. She hung her sweater in the closet, walked into the family room, and jumped slightly when she noticed a man sitting on her couch reading a magazine. 
Then she laughed at herself and waved hello. The man was Bob McMurray, a NASA protocol officer. The wife and children of each crew member were routinely allocated at least one protocol man whose job it was to spend the time from liftoff to splashdown living with the family, protecting them from the press and onlookers crowding their sidewalk, and explaining any unexpected developments in the flight. Ordinarily, the job could be demanding, and McMurray, who had been assigned to the levels during Apollo 8, was used to putting in long hours. For Apollo 13, however, there were no onlookers or reporters outside, and so far, no unexpected developments. Marilyn had hoped for a little additional company tonight, and earlier in the day had invited her next-door neighbor, Betty Benware, over for a drink. But Betty had begged off. Her husband, Bob, was the head of the Philco Ford Group that maintained the consoles and other equipment in Mission Control, and the couple had just spent two days entertaining his bosses, who had come down to see how the operation ran during an actual flight. Apart from the protocol man, the only other direct connection Marilyn had to the Space Center during the long days of the mission was a squawk box NASA had hooked up in her bedroom three days earlier. The box served as a listen-only intercom that allowed an astronaut's wife to monitor the communications between her husband and the Capcom around the clock. But most of what families could hear was incomprehensible, a lot of numbers and vectors that even the flight controllers themselves occasionally found tedious. But Marilyn and the other wives were listening less for the words than they were for the tone, the trouble tone. And for this, the box could be indispensable. At this time of night, with the crew already on their sleep shift, the box would be carrying only static. And with McMurray settled comfortably in the family room with nothing to report himself, Marilyn figured it was safe to put any thoughts about the mission out of her mind and head toward the kitchen to make coffee. Before she could get there, the front door opened and Pete and Jane Conrad walked in. Did you see him? Jane asked Marilyn. Saw them all, Marilyn said. They look great. Everything seems to be going exactly according to schedule. Jim runs a tight ship, Conrad said. I just wish they'd put the broadcast on TV, Marilyn said. Let people see what a good job they're doing. They'll put a minute of it on the late news, said Jane, if only to remind everybody that they're up there. Marilyn was about to show Pete and Jane into the kitchen for some coffee when the phone rang. McMurray started to lift himself from the sofa to answer it, but Marilyn, who was closer, waved him off with a smile and picked up the receiver herself. Marilyn, the voice on the line said tentatively, It's Jerry Hammock. I'm calling from over at the center. Jerry Hammock and his wife, Adeline, lived across the street and were close friends of the Lovells. Hammock himself was head of the NASA recovery team that was responsible for retrieving the Apollo command modules out of the ocean when they splashed down. Jerry? Marilyn said, surprised. What are you doing working so late? I just wanted to let you know that you don't have anything to worry about. The Russians, the Japanese, 
and a lot of other countries have already offered to help in the recovery. We can bring them down in just about any ocean and have them on a carrier in no time. Jerry, what are you talking about? Have you been drinking? Hasn't anyone told you? Told me what? About the problem. In the suburbs of Houston, where the business was space, the factory was mission control, and the likelihood of a problem occurring was almost unsettlingly high. News travels fast. Nearby in the Frank Borman home, the phone rang at about the same time Marilyn Lovells did. The former Apollo 8 commander listened to the news from the Space Center, hung up the receiver, and turned to Susan. Lovell's in trouble, Borman said. It doesn't look good. I'm going over to NASA. You go over to the house. Susan picked up the receiver. Borman had just dropped and phoned the nearby McCullough home where Marilyn's friend, Carmi, lived. Frank says there's a problem with the moon flight, she said. Meet me at Marilyn's in five minutes. At the house next to the Lovells, the Benwares got their own call from the Space Center. You better go next door, Bob said to his wife Betty after listening to the news. I better go to work. In the Lovell home itself, Marilyn, fresh off her breezy 12-minute ride from the Space Center, was aware of none of this. What problem? She now said to Hammock, her voice noticeably rising. Jerry, I just saw Jim on TV. Everything was fine. Uh, well, everything isn't fine. A few things have gone wrong. What things? Well, mostly it's a power problem. Hammock began to hedge. A fuel cell problem, actually. They're running out of electricity, and, well, it looks like they're not going to be able to go through with the landing. In the background, Marilyn heard the second phone line ring in the study and saw McMurray running to answer it. Oh, Jerry, that's terrible, she said. Jim's worked so hard for this. He's going to be so disappointed. Yes, I'm sure he will be, Hammock said. But in any case, I didn't want you to worry. We're doing everything we can over here. Marilyn hung up and turned to Jane. This is terrible, she said. Then Marilyn saw Conrad and McMurray standing by the study, deep in whispered conversation. Conrad looked pale and distracted. His eyes were wide. Marilyn, Conrad said hoarsely, where's the squawk box? Why do you need the squawk box, Marilyn asked. No one's talked to you yet? Yes, I talked to Jerry Hammock. He told me about the fuel cell problem. Marilyn, Conrad said quietly, this is more than a fuel cell problem. Conrad steered Marilyn to a chair, set her down, and explained everything the protocol man had just told him. The disappearance of the oxygen in tank two, the problem with tank one, the venting, the gyrating, the plummeting power, the thinning air, and worse, the mysterious bang that it had started with. Marilyn listened and felt suddenly sick. This wasn't supposed to happen. Before Jim went out there, this was precisely what he had promised would never happen. Marilyn pulled away from Conrad, ran to the television, and flipped it on. Instinctively, 
she switched it not to CBS, where family friend Wally Sherall would be working, but to ABC, where Jules Bergman, the giant of science correspondence, could be found. Almost immediately, she was sorry she had. Bergman, she discovered, was talking about the same oxygen tanks Conrad had just mentioned, the same spacecraft gyrations, the same mysterious bang. But unlike Conrad, Bergman was talking about one other thing, too, the odds. As Marilyn listened, Bergman told his audience that while nobody could predict these things precisely, there appeared to be no better than a 10% chance that the crew of Apollo 13 would make it home alive. Here is a special report on Apollo 13. At ABC News Space Center, here is ABC Science Editor Jules Bergman. The Apollo 13 spacecraft has suffered a major electrical failure, leaving the astronauts in no immediate danger but ruling out any chance of any lunar landing as of now. Seconds after inspecting the Aquarius lunar module, Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes had crawled back into their command module and then reported hearing a loud bang followed by a power loss in two of their three fuel cells. They also reported seeing fuel, apparently oxygen and nitrogen, leaking from the spacecraft and reported the gauges for those gases were reading zero. And astronauts Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert are making their way through the tunnel to the lunar module, using it as a lifeboat so they'll have electrical power for their radios on the command module. Apollo 13 is apparently also losing breathing oxygen, and the astronauts may have to use the LEMS oxygen supply. The emergency has ruled out any chance of a lunar landing and could endanger the lives of the astronauts themselves. Marilyn turned from the screen and covered her face. The newscaster's report was chilling. Though no one else in the room recognized it, Marilyn instantly noticed that Bergman, like Conrad and Hammock before him, was using the tone. In New York City, about 10.40 p.m. Eastern Time, former astronaut Wally Sherall was working an American Petroleum Club function. He was not only a featured party guest, but also the featured speaker. Ordinarily, the ex-astronaut would not dash off to New York for just any function. But he rather liked this group and enjoyed attending their affairs. Besides, he had to be in the city anyway. Since retiring from NASA in early 1969, Sherall had signed on with CBS to help Walter Cronkite cover all the Apollo moon landings. His first assignment had been Apollo 11 in July 1969. Then, Apollo 12 in November. Just two days ago, he and Cronkite had gone on the air to cover the launch of Apollo 13. Tomorrow, Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes would be preparing for their lunar landing, and Sherall would be on hand to help broadcast that, too. But that was tomorrow. Right now, Sherall was wrapping up his duties at the Petroleum Club and making his way across town to Toots Shore, on West 52nd Street. Wally knew Toots well, and though it was late, he knew that the tavern owner would probably have a pretty full house. Sherall arrived at the restaurant, made his way to the bar, and ordered his drink. As expected, the place was full. Just as the drink showed up, so did Toots. Wally, don't touch that drink, Toots said. What's wrong, Toots? We just got a call. There's a problem in Houston. What happened? 
I really don't know. But they're having some kind of problem. A big one. Wally, there's a car from CBS out front for you. Cronkite is going on the air, and you're supposed to go with him. Sheral rushed out the door and saw the car waiting for him. He jumped in the back seat, announced his name, and with barely a nod, the driver took off across town. When the car reached CBS, Sheral raced to the studio and found Cronkite about to go on the air. The anchor man did not look good. He called Sheral over and thrust a sheet of wire service copy at him. Sheral scanned the text hurriedly, and with each sentence, his heart sank. This was bad. This was worse than bad. This was almost unheard of. He had a thousand questions, but there wasn't time to ask. We're going on in a minute, Cronkite told him. The stage hand waved Cronkite and Sheral over to the set, and the journalist and the astronaut took their seats. Seconds later, the red light on the camera flashed on, and television screens across the country were filled with the image of a steady Walter Cronkite and a slightly dazed Wally Sherall. Cronkite began reading his copy, and it was only then, as America learned the full scope of the crisis unfolding aboard Apollo 13, that Sherall learned it too. The flight of the Apollo 13 to the moon is in serious jeopardy and is not going to make a moon landing. And this is indeed the gravest emergency probably yet in the American space program. The whole circumstance uh, began unfolding at around 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time when Jim Lovell, the commander of the Apollo 13 uh, command module Odyssey, reported back uh, to the Mission Control Center in Houston that uh, the fuel cells were draining rapidly of their power. They have three fuel cells, and one and three went out almost immediately, and two began draining rapidly. They was try to conserve some of the power in that uh, fuel cell. They shut down all power and went on the battery power in the lunar module landing craft, uh, Aquarius. In Houston, at midnight, NASA held its first press conference since the malfunction. Here are some of the more interesting audio clips. Participants in the forthcoming press conference uh, within the next 15 minutes or so will be uh, Manned Spacecraft Center Deputy Director Christopher C. Kraft, Jr. Apollo Spacecraft Program Office Manager James A. McDivitt and MSC Director of Flight Operations Sigurd Schoberg. This will be in the small briefing room in the Houston News Center will be isolated from the air ground, which will be continually fed uh, in real time to the news center. I should uh, start out by saying that uh, we have a serious problem uh, in the command and service module. We appear to have had some kind of uh, accident with the, uh, in the region of the fuel cells and the oxygen tanks. We have not tried too much to reconstruct the, uh, what has happened because we're more concerned at the moment for getting the situation under control. Uh, as you have seen, we've uh, begun to use the uh, limb as a device for keeping 
oxygen in both the command and service command module and the lunar module, and we're using the power system from the lunar module. Uh, the, it appears at the present time that everything is under control and that uh, we have a safe situation at the moment. Uh, I think uh, Colonel McDivitt may want to give you some more details on the systems and uh, Mr. Schoberg could certainly talk about the operations plans that are going on at the present time in the control center. Uh, right, Chris. The way we have the spacecraft configured right now is uh, with the CSM powered down completely. Uh, before we powered it down, we were able to isolate the surge tank and the emergency repress tanks in the CS in the command module. Uh, these provide oxygen for reentry, so we have a, a command module that has oxygen for reentry. It has the reentry batteries and has pyro batteries and all the systems uh, that are in the command module. Our uh, Malfunction uh, apparently occurred in the bay, which which includes the hydrogen tanks, the oxygen tanks, and the fuel cells, and uh, was in no way connected with anything with the command module. We should be able to provide power, electrical power, from the LEM for the uh, return voyage to Earth. Uh, we should re be able to return on the oxygen within the LEM, and we'll be using the lithium hydroxide out of both the command module and the uh, lunar module. We can still power the command module from the lunar module at uh, low power levels through the wiring which is normally used to power the LEM from the command module. So we expect that we'll be using a dual spacecraft mode from now until the time that we uh, get back to Earth. Uh, we'll have to, we'll be firing the LEM engine uh, at some time later to accelerate our return voyage and I think SIG probably comment on that best. Uh, yeah, the uh, minimum return to Earth time, this would be a total flight duration, would be about 133 hours. That would result in a landing in the Atlantic. That's one option we have. A second option would be to go to the, uh, the Pacific line. That would take about uh, 142 hours uh, total flight duration. The burns to get you back would be made at about between 77 hours and 79 hours of, of uh, flight from liftoff. Uh, ready for questions now? Please wait for the mic. We're going to have to get all this. Uh, where are we? Are you ready? Let's, let's start here and work across. Mark Bloom, then we'll go this way and we'll turn over to the aisle. Uh, for Jim McDivitt or anyone who wants to ask, how much electrical life power at a time, lifetime, do we have in the LEM, and how much oxygen lifetime, how long do we have? Well, Mark, it depends upon how we use it, obviously. We have four batteries in the descent stage of the LEM with 400 amp hours each. We have uh, two batteries in the ascent stage with 296 amp hours each. If you rough that out quickly, it says we can use power at about 25 amps. Uh, Steady, steady current until we get back. Now, we'll have to um, arrange the electrical profile so that we can bring up the systems to perform the dock DPS maneuver, and then we'll power down to minimum levels and go along like that. When I left, we had an ample power supply to do the whole mission, but we were still roughing it out and trying to get in a configuration which we knew. Oxygen, we have 48 pounds of oxygen in the, in the uh, LEM descent tanks, which is more than adequate to do the mission. We also have a couple pounds in the, in the LEM ascent tanks. I, I think I said decent 
Descent tanks has 48 pounds. The ascent tanks have about a pound or so. The point is that we have locked up the CSM systems to preserve that spacecraft for reentry, both in terms of power and, and oxygen. So uh, it, it is sufficient to support entry. We can expand a little more on the possibility of an Atlantic uh, Ocean landing and what the recovery posture is for the Atlantic. Uh, for an Atlantic landing, we would have airplanes with para-jumpers on the scene at the time of landing. We're presently uh, surveying that area of the Atlantic. If I remember, it's about uh, 20 or 25 degrees south and about, uh, well, I think it's about 25 or 30 degrees west longitude. And we're presently uh, surveying the area for ships of opportunity. We, we do not have a planned recovery ship in that area, as you know. Right here. Uh, Chris, has this abort situation or altered uh, trajectory ever been run on simulators in just this way? Oh, yes. Uh, many times we run all kinds of abort situations. And, and if you recall, in, uh, in Colonel McDivitt's flight, we actually burned the uh, DIPS engine attached to the command and service module. The, the uh, autopilot in the lunar module is designed to carry out the maneuver under those circumstances. That is, the digital autopilot to damp the, the oscillations of the combined spacecraft. You've got a situation where the LIM oxygen system can provide like 50-plus hours for two guys. Uh, how do you equate that with 146 hours of return if you don't have any kind of environmental control of, uh, operation in the command module right now? Normally, we on the lunar surface, we plan on three uh, lunar surface repressurizations. It actually has enough for four. Now, there's about 6.6 .6 pounds of oxygen per repressurization required, and the, and the limb leak rate is about uh, 0.08 pounds per hour. Uh, the metabolic rate is a little bit, and we're using probably two-tenths of a pound per hour, so we've got uh, quite a large margin there. Uh, Chris, are, are you confident that you have enough power under the current, current configuration to, to bring the, the uh, follow back in? Yes, but I think we'll have to be very frugal in how we use it, and that's what you've probably heard some of the discussions uh, uh, back and forth between the crew. We We were trying to consider whether we would keep the platform up, for instance, between now and the time you go behind the moon in order to maintain that alignment so that they wouldn't have to do another alignment when they get ready to do the burn on the dips and so on. So it will have to be very carefully used between here and, uh, and the splash. And, and how do you feel in point of concern between now and Gemini 8? Well, I, I guess I would have to say I feel a great deal more concerned. We're, uh, we're still something like... Uh, 70 to 80 hours away from the Earth. And in Gemini 8, we were never more than an hour and a half to get to a recovery point and never more than 20 minutes to land. I believe I heard uh, Fred Hayes mention that uh, it might be considered to use a deep space abort in order to uh, immediately get the burn over with and power down the limb so you wouldn't have that drain in keeping it powered up till they get around the moon. Has this been completely disregarded now? We can't, uh, the position we are now on the Earth-Moon plane, we have to go around the the uh, the moon to get back if we're going to use the DIPS engine. You, you would have had enough capability with the SPS engine, but of course we don't dare use that now. 
Curtis, you were in a catbird seat on John Glenn in a retro pack that didn't come off. Scott Carpenter in an overshoe. Dave Scott in a stuck thruster. Uh, how would you, uh, and forgive me if I put you on a spot, but how would you classify this situation as regards to these that we are familiar with a little bit? I'd, I'd say this is as serious a uh, situation as we have, ever, we have ever had in manned space flight. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 270 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, The News Breaks. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I would like to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. I want to remind you that the last 50 episodes of the podcast are now available on Spotify. So if you use Spotify, that may be helpful. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? I have added some more to the archive. Episodes 1 through 91, yes, I said 91, are available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for Space Rocket History Archive. And we will try to get some more up next month in hopes of catching up with the main feed. Today, we salute the Mir ISS level donors. There is one so far this year. Mir ISS donors contribute $80 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, Mir ISS donors. Okay, important announcement for next week. I had planned to do an encore episode next week because we are going out of town. Then, the following week, we will get right back to Apollo 13. So that's probably what's going to happen. The only thing I could see that would change that is this uh, hurricane that's coming in to uh, North Carolina now. That may prevent us from leaving till later, and we may have a regular episode, but I would say it's 90% sure that we're going to have an encore episode next week. All right, let me credit my sources. Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. Flight by Chris Kraft. The Apollo 13 Flight Journal. The Johnson Space Center. And the Internet Archive and Wikipedia. Most of this episode came directly from Jim Lovell's book. And in the book, it says that Jules Bergman only gave the astronauts a 10% chance to make it back. Now, I believe that to be true, but I could not find another source to verify that low number of 10%. It really seems low to me. So I want you to take that number as unverified because I could not find any other source to confirm that low 10% number. During the press conference, it seemed to me, I don't know if it did to you, that the guys were kind of trying to hedge a bit and not panic the public. I will say 
that some of the things Kraft says in his book contradict what he says in the press conference. That press conference painted a much rosier picture of the situation than it was. But in the end, they proved themselves right. So what can you say? I could understand why you would always want to put your best face forward to the media and to always look like you're in control of the situation, even though, you know, it's not entirely controlled. And there are some problems. So uh, I thought that press conference was a little bit optimistic. Just my opinion. You may vary. I could be way off base on this one. Most important thing is they did get the astronauts home, and they were proven right. Okay, I've posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Ilya R. from Australia donated at the Orion level. Thank you. Per H. donated at the Apollo level and earned his moon emoji. Jeff O. donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Bert D. from the Netherlands donated at the Vostok level and earned his moon emoji. James B. from Georgia donated at the Vostok level. Simon P. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. An anonymous donor pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Mark R. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Kyle P. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. So our Patreon donors have now reached 189 with a goal of reaching 218 by the end of the year. And our total donors have reached 339 with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going, especially during the last couple weeks of the dog days of summer. To support the podcast, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange donate button make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate, unless they don't want their name on the donate page, and that's fine. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week, it is the new official SRH logo magnet that we're giving away. It is three inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Chris Demke. That's Chris Demke. I think that's the way you pronounce it. If you would email me and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. Remember, next week will most likely be an encore episode, and then we'll be on to episode 271 with our continued study of Apollo 13. So long for now.